the FDIC has made some changes aimed at streamlining the rules governing broker deposits. Tom Nelson, Chief Investment Officer at RNT Deposit Solutions, joins us to explain some of the rules changes that stand to affect banks and credit unions. Actionable insights can help power smart decisions. Each week, the BAI Banking Strategies podcast focuses on important issues facing financial services leaders, as well as the emerging trends that are rapidly reshaping the financial industry. I'm Terry Badger, your host and the managing editor at BAI. Pull up a chair and join us. The FDIC has made some changes in its rules governing broker deposits. So what does this mean for banks and credit unions? Tom Nelson, Chief Investment Officer at RNT Deposit Solutions, is with us to discuss the new rules and their potential implications. Tom, welcome to the BAI Banking Strategies podcast. Thank you for having me today. Before we get too deep into the FDIC's recent rules change, let's clarify a bit more about what we're going to be talking about. So what is a broker deposit and how does a broker deposit at a bank differ from a core deposit? Well, in the simplest term, a broker deposit is simply a situation where a bank gets a deposit from somebody outside of its normal network of customers where that deposit is brokered to them by a third party, a middleman who brings a customer who doesn't have a general relationship with the bank into the bank. And it's a way for banks to get funding outside of its normal footprint, outside of its normal customer base but it's relying on somebody in the middle to bring those customers to the bank. How big a chunk of the deposit universe is represented by broker deposits? I'm thinking they must be a pretty important source of liquidity if banks are willing to pay a higher interest rate for them, right? They are. I mean, right now it's it's smaller than it's usually been. It's about six and a half percent of the entire deposit market. It's usually closer to 10%. But more importantly, it's that marginal deposit that a bank can get that rounds out their balance sheet. And it gives them a lever to get that last one, two, three, four, five percent of their deposits without adjusting everything they're doing with their existing customer base. So if they need to go out and raise another 20 million, 30 million, $10 million, whatever the number might be, they don't have to change rates on their checking accounts, offer interest rate specials on CDs, things of that nature. So one of the reasons that banks are sometimes willing to pay higher rates is because they can get that marginal dollar but not impact their entire base. But in a lot of times, broker deposits are actually cheaper for many banks than their core source of funding, but there's limitations around how much they can take. Okay, so back in the 90s, largely as a result of the savings and loan crisis, the FDIC put in place a framework for deciding what constituted a broker deposit. And a few weeks ago, they approved a rule that amended that framework. So why did the FDIC make those changes and why did they do it now? Well, I mean, I think the changes were done because the market is constantly evolving. What constitutes a middleman changes as technology changes and different products are created. I can't really speak for why they did it now versus a year ago or or things of that nature, but we're in a very, very different place than we were in the 1990s. You know, the brokered sweep programs that are the traditional cash source for banks out of the broker-dealer community, they effectively didn't exist when these rules were put in place in the 90s. 
So the market has evolved, and I give credit to the FDIC for coming up with rule changes that deal with the way that the market has evolved over time. When you look out over the banking industry, who do you see as being the key beneficiaries of the updated FDIC framework? And maybe you could tell us a bit more about how they benefit. Sure. Uh, You know, this is really, in our opinion, one of these Goldilocks situations. It's good for everybody. Broker-dealers are helped in this space because there are more banks that are willing to take their deposits. Banks are clearly helped because they're now able to get the deposits from a very large customer base, i.e. the the broker-dealer community, in a very cost-effective way. But now they get to treat these deposits as core. And they don't have the issues associated with large amounts of broker deposits on their balance sheet the way they might have prior to this rule, or it opens up a market that many weren't willing to enter because of the stigma that some feel are attached to broker deposits. In our opinion, this is a situation that's good for effectively every bank, clearly certain banks that will find this more attractive than others, like there always is when you have thousands of participants, but it's really good for everybody. How do they benefit is really the big issue is on how they benefit is the fact that they get to move a significant amount of balances from a potentially brokered situation to a potentially core situation, which is reduces their need to potentially have excess FDIC assessments because they're over brokered deposit limits. And that's really the key benefit for the banks. Now that we've sort of set the scene, we can get more into the actual nuts and bolts of the rules change for broker deposits. A lot of technical stuff here, Tom. So without getting too deep in the weeds, what are the one or two most important changes in the rules governing broker deposits? Well, we think the biggest change absolutely is the fact that broker dealers who run FDIC insured cash suite programs for their customers will now have the ability to notify the FDIC under these rules that they're no longer deposit brokers. It often gets confused that that brokers aren't brokers, but they'll remain broker-dealers, obviously, but they're not going to be deposit brokers necessarily under these rules changes. And for the vast majority of broker-dealers that run these programs, they will now be able to get acceptance from the FDIC that they shouldn't be deemed to be brokers. In doing so, there are now a significant number of banks who would not look at broker deposits before or who are up to their maximum amounts in broker deposits, who will now actively, in our opinion, go after involvement in this space to broaden out their balance sheet into a whole new world or expand into a world that they've been limited in using up to date. The changes to the primary purpose exemption rules create a greater breadth in the relationship and services that don't require an application to the FDIC. What are some of the relationships and services that fall under those exemptions, and why would they be exempted? Well, I mean, I think as it pertains to all of these, they're exempted based upon the idea that there are brokers and there are brokers, right? The idea that not every situation is the same. So again, using the sweep situation as an example, which is clearly one of the biggest areas where the primary purpose has changed. The FDIC is basically saying... If a broker-dealer has less than 25% of its customer assets in cash, the obvious primary purpose of those accounts that have been opened are not to get FDIC insurance, are not to place cash deposits. 
They're for general investment purposes. And the business that these broker-dealers do as it relates to these deposits is ancillary to their business. So I think the decision by the FDIC to change the primary purpose for these deposits is critical. Now, they've also gone through and changed a number or clarified, I should say, primary purpose on a number of other types of accounts. But generally speaking, most of those situations are ones that either through intermittent rulings or opinions or things of that nature have been broadly understood to be exempt from primary purpose. This to us is the biggest direct change in the rules. There's also a distinction drawn between entities that place broker deposits and those that facilitate the placement of broker deposits. Now, on its face, there doesn't seem to be much of a difference between these two things. So what's the practical reason for making that distinction? Well, I think there's, you know, there's a situation where for those firms that are exempt now under the new primary purpose exemptions, where basically the FDIC is saying these entities, these firms have a direct and tight relationship to the customer. They're acting on those customers' behalf. They're doing things that are ancillary to other businesses that they're doing with those customers. But there's a very tight, direct relationship between those entities and the end customers. They're really acting directly as their agent. They're standing in for them. When you're talking about other entities that are one step removed, entities such as us, our relationship with the end client at a broker-dealer, as an example, is significantly different than the broker-dealer's relationship with that end client. And I think it makes sense that the rules that apply to us and what we do on behalf of the broker-dealer is different than the rules that a broker-dealer has to live by on behalf of the clients with whom they have a significantly different vested interest, contracting, goals, everything else, that in many cases, people like us, we have a very different type of relationship. So I think that's a practical reason for making distinctions between the two. The new rules don't go into effect until next January. Why is there such a long delay in the implementation? Is there a lot of preparation work that has to be done within the FDIC or within the banks or, or other entities? At uh, RNT, for instance, what will you have to do to get ready for the future broker deposit landscape? Well, it's very interesting as you look at these new rules, there's always this debate that we're talking about with many of our colleagues. Do they go into effect in January of next year? Do they go into effect of April of this year? Really what's happening is that these new rules can be relied upon effective April 1st of this year. But all of the other reliance that participants have had from whether it's opinions and directives and things like that over the past you know, since the broker deposit rules were put in place, those can all still be relied upon until January 1st. And what the FDIC has basically said, effective January 1st, this now becomes the rule. This is what you have to rely on. But you have between now and January 1st to continue using old rules, old framework, so that people have time to adjust contracting, business practices, and everything else to get in touch with the new rules. These rules were put into place, some of the details, fairly quickly. There were some things put into the rule, you know, again, this was put in just at the end of December that we didn't realize were going to be put in. So it takes some time, I think, for everybody to understand. So I think it's made a lot of sense that the FDIC has basically said, okay, you have nine months, you can go with the old rules, 
You can go with the new rules. But at the end of December, on January 1st, the new rules are the rules. I think that's an important distinction. There isn't a tremendous amount of preparation in most of the areas of the rules that firms have to do. Broker-dealers, again, as an example, will just have to uh, notify the FDIC why they should be exempt under the primary purpose. That's a minimal amount of work that they'll have to do to notify the FDIC. As an example, we're going to have to go through, look at all of our business practices, talk to our customers, find out how we're going to do business going forward, make some modifications to some of the things that we do to make sure that we reach an outcome that all the banks and all the broker-dealers are happy with, that works for everybody involved. And then the other big thing is things like this uh, here today is an education and a discussion process so that people understand what's in these rules and people understand what changes they need to make in their own business practices to take the most effect of these rules for their own balance sheets and their own needs. Makes a lot of sense to get the word out so institutions can adjust, be it in April or at the start of 2022. So Tom Nelson, Chief Investment Officer at R&T, thanks again for joining us on the Banking Strategies podcast and for walking us through the FDIC's new rules on broker deposits. And thank you very much for having me. A few takeaways from our conversation with Tom Nelson from R&T. First, some of the basics on the FDIC's new rules for broker deposits. A major change is that entities such as broker-dealers that operate federally insured cash sweeps are no longer automatically classified as deposit brokers. A key consideration is how much of the entity's business involves brokering deposits. If it's sufficiently small, the cash sweeps operator can put in for an FDIC exemption that would reduce their regulatory burden. So what do the new rules mean for banks? In RNT's view, the recent changes are pretty much a win all around. Generally speaking, banks stand to benefit from being able to secure deposits from a larger customer base and do so cost-effectively. Banks can also consider these to be core deposits, which diminishes regulatory issues related to having sizable amounts of broker deposits on their balance sheets. And finally, the FDIC is giving banks and other entities some leeway on when they need to start adhering to the new rules regarding broker deposits. If they wish, institutions can put the rules into effect as soon as April 1st. But if they choose to not implement quickly, they can put off adherence for the rest of 2021. But come next January 1st, the new FDIC rules are the only option. Thanks for being with us for the BAI Banking Strategies podcast. I'm Terry Badger, Managing Editor at BAI. Please join us for our next conversation on an issue of importance to the financial services industry.